as a newer person in this in this life of faith, I think for me, that's also been an aha moment, which I'm sure is not a surprise to many of your listeners, but it's like that showing up in your relationship with God takes showing up. Like, I think I sort of thought that spirituality was like getting the flu or, you know, like it sort of happened to you, like whether you wanted it or not. So like you would just like get to know, I don't know, like God or spirituality would just like kind of happen as opposed to it's more, I think the metaphor going back to your sports analogy is more like exercise. It's like, if you read a book about spirituality, it's not the same thing as praying, right? If you read a book about exercise, it's not the same thing as exercising. If you, if you read about prayer, you got to pray. Hi there, friends. This is episode 87 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff, and today we have an episode with Kate Rademacher. And uh, this episode is going to be called Knowing Where God is Leading, Following the Red Bird. And uh, that's uh, taken from Kate. the title of Kate's first book that she wrote, and you'll hear a whole bunch of that in our interview. Um, one of the most wonderful things about Kate, she's super engaging, um, and uh, she's actually she's a fairly new believer. Um, she was baptized as an adult after uh, being raised in as a Unitarian Universalist, and she has influences from Buddhism. Um, but she was baptized as an adult in the Episcopalian Church, and so it's a really cool story. Um, but one of the greatest things about Kate that I really appreciated was that she has this. Great great and amazing perspective on on this um, discovering frameworks for spirituality within the Christian tradition. So this is such a gift because I think a lot of us who uh, grew up as Christian or grew up in the church, we um, take a lot of the things that we have in our tradition for granted and we sort of miss these frameworks for prayer and engaging with scripture uh, that are just embedded in our tradition. And um, so I think Kate is a great voice because she can help us sort of uncover some of those things that we have. Um, so, but before we get to the interview today with Kate, I just wanted to say it has been a long time since I have done one of these episodes, but there are more on the way. So I've actually interviewed a bunch of people and there's going to be some interviews that are coming out um, every couple of weeks. There'll be a new podcast episode for you. So sorry it's been so long and it's kind of been sporadic up till then. There'd been a lot going on and obviously there's lots going on in the world as well. And uh, and I was having uh, trouble actually kind of <laughs> trying to navigate, you know, all the different things that I was trying to do working um, for the Presbyterian Church in Canada, also a pastor in a local church and trying to keep writing and also putting out podcast episodes. And it uh, in some ways it was just kind of too much. Um, but I had some time off in July, which was really restoring and so that was really fantastic. And now I I wanted to do a bit of a personal update today before the interview, so it'll make this episode a little bit longer than usual. Um, But I'm really excited about a few things that are coming up and also wanted to share with you a few other things that I've uh, done recently. Um, So I've actually been working really hard on my book, and I I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before. I think many of you might have got an email from me about uh, Let God Send, uh, which is a new book that I have coming out. It's going to be out in November 2020. Uh, So Let God Send, Crossing Boundaries and Serving in Christ's Name, and it's all 
all about um, how God is leading us. So it actually dovetails quite nicely with a lot of what Kate and I talk about in this interview today. Um, it's about how God might be leading us, moving us beyond our, our normal, what we might normally do, and how that is always pushing us to go out to serve uh, and what that looks like. Uh, so that's what that book's about. And, and a bunch of you who might be listening today join me in a book club that I led on the book, uh, kind of a preview uh, look at that book. But there's also a bunch of extra publishing things to do to get the book ready to go. But now it is for sure ready to go. It's going to be out in November and you can pre-order it. So um, you actually can go to letgodsend.com and you can find out information. You may not be able to pre-order just yet from that website, um, but searching for it on Amazon, you might find it there and and, uh, and find a pre-order link um, depending on when you're listening to this episode. Uh, but I'm super excited that that book is ready to go and it's going to be available. And I've got a few things planned for the launching of that book. So stay tuned. That's going to be uh, coming out soon. Um, like I said, I had some time off in July of 2020 and and um and i think there's real power in taking time off whether it's uh, a month or a week or whether it's even just a day and taking a sabbath something else we talk about in this interview um there's real power in that to be able to be restored um but also to refocus a little bit and i found this a real refocusing time uh and um a time for me to really consider like what what do i want to say um i was actually having trouble responding to a to a bunch of things that were going on in the world so partly uh COVID-19 but also uh what to say about Black Lives Matter and uh what to say about um it's been a a year since the report on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in Canada and um and that's something that's really close to my heart but i just struggled with how do i speak about this as a pastor as a white man as well and um and what should i say in my congregation and so i ended up um preaching a sermon that talked about a bunch of, of the, those kinds of things, some of the social justice type issues that are going on right now in our world, and what I really think our response might be. This actually flowed from a Bible passage in Isaiah 56, and I was actually really worried to preach this particular sermon. And so I posted this uh, a little bit just uh, the day after I preached this, just uh, about a week or so ago. Um, I posted this on Facebook, and I just read it to you. Yesterday, I was a little scared to preach this sermon where I spoke about the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, why some of us balk at Black Lives Matter, why protest is often needed, and how we need to engage with the particular before moving to the universal. Yes, all this flows from a Bible passage in Isaiah 56. As I said, I was afraid. And I also mentioned how the fact that I was worried about what people might think also tells us that we have a big problem. So I decided to just say what I felt I needed to say. And so I actually want to just play for you a short clip from that sermon. I think this might be less than a minute. Um, and I just wanted to play a little bit just so you could hear a little bit about what I actually preached on um, and was worried to uh, to preach on. Uh, and uh, I just wanted to share that with anyone who's listening today. See, it isn't enough to say things like all people are God's children. We should say that. That's a good thing to say, but it isn't enough to say it. 
And I think a big reason why is that for centuries and centuries, one group of people would say that, and they wouldn't really mean that another group was actually included in it. All people are God's children. They could speak in the generality, in the universal, but they could not act in the particular. See, it's not enough to just say that. If you're not getting what I'm saying, here's what I'm saying. White men used to say that from pulpits, but when they said all people, they didn't mean women. They didn't mean black people. They didn't mean indigenous people. They didn't mean anyone but themselves. Now, sure, in the universal, in the generalities, they did mean everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not in the particular, right? Not in their actions. Not when it came to the actual real life and death situations. Or the things that we might not even consider life and death, like voting rights. Or access to education. Or if we want to be even more current in Canada with our indigenous people, access to clean drinking water, talk about rights. Or jobs. And here's the thing. When we want to shout the universal the general, all lives matter, but won't face the particular black lives matter, we are doing the same thing as our forebears. All right, so that is the clip from that sermon that I preached. If you want to hear the whole thing, or you can actually watch the whole thing on YouTube, uh, if you go to um, YouTube and you search for Prairie Presbyterian Church, you'll find our YouTube channel. And the sermons are actually posted as standalone, but also our live streams of our service are there as well. Um, Alternatively, if you're having trouble finding it, you can just go to Prairie Church. And that's our church website. You can find a link to the YouTube channel there. Uh, I just wanted to remind you as well that I'd love to hear from you if you want to respond to anything um, that I'm saying or this interview, this podcast episode. Um, Follow me on Instagram. Connect with me there. I'm probably most active there than any other social media. So you can follow me at Matthew D. Bruff, D for David, Matthew D. Bruff on Instagram. Or you can go to Spirituality for Ordinary People on Instagram and find it um, because that's the same as this website and this podcast, spiritualityforordinarypeople.com. Feel free to email me at matt at mattbruff.com. The other thing I'd love to ask you to do just to consider if you are a regular listener of this podcast or just even this episode and you love it, uh, consider leaving a review for the podcast. It just helps others find it. Um, But actually even better than leaving a review is tell other people hey, this is a really great podcast, you should go listen to this. And uh, word of mouth is actually the best way to uh, let people know about these kinds of resources for people who are on the journey and are trying to work out their faith and have uh, a more grounded and, um, uh, I don't know, new ways as well of thinking about their spirituality. All right, so that is my update for today. Uh, Lots more to come in the next few weeks and months. But for now, on to the interview with Kate Rademacher. Today on the podcast, I have Kate Rademacher, and I'm just thrilled to have you here, Kate, uh, to have uh, some conversations around your writing, some of the books that you write, and um, yeah, just, just really happy to have you today. Thanks so much, Matt. It's really fun to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, I was introduced to Kate um, 
really through uh, an online writers conference that I was at where Kate was uh, speaking at a couple of different um, uh, times in that conference and was really impressed with some of her story and some of the things that she shared. Um, And she had some great things to say, not just about being a writer, but also around... um, around vocation and also around discernment. And those are two topics that I'm really interested in. So that was partly what drove me to want to invite her to come onto the podcast. Um, but also that we just have a mutual friend in, um, uh, and, and thought, Hey, this would be great to have a conversation with her. Um, so I wonder if we can even just start with the idea of vocation and maybe just to hear a little bit about who you are as well in that question. Like, how would you describe what your vocation or your multiple vocations are. Yeah, thanks. I, you, you, as you said, you hit on two of my favorite words, vocations and what it's the mean of vocation and discernment. And that's obviously they go hand in hand, right? Because mm-hmm. many of us are trying to discern our, our calls and our vocations. Um, so I have, uh, I, I, I like to call myself bivocational. I, um, as I was mentioning to you, I just uh, was introduced to that word about a year or two ago, and I found it really helpful. Um, so I have a busy day job in international public health. I work for a large um, international um, non-government, non-governmental organization, um, an international NGO, and we work um, on global development and international public health. So I, all of my work focuses on increasing access to contraception in low and middle income countries, mostly sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. So, um, you know, I was, I got my master's degree in public health and have been working um, first domestically in the U.S. and now internationally um, for the past 20 years. And so, you know, that is very demanding and takes a lot of my time and energy. And um, I about... Um, 10 years ago, really felt, I I always considered myself to be a spiritual seeker, um, but I wasn't raised as a Christian and um, felt some restlessness trying to find a a spiritual home. And I can expand on that, I'm sure, in the interview. But about 10 years ago, um, felt myself it felt a desire to go deeper with my spiritual life. And ultimately, very surprisingly, a uh, big surprise to me was called to Christ and was called to Christianity and was baptized about um, eight, year, eight and a half years ago. Um, and then even more surprisingly, in some, in some ways, I felt this restless sort of undeniable call to write about the experience. And so I just started writing and um, I, it became pretty clear pretty early on that it was taking the shape of a book. And again, I, you know, like, who am I to write a book? But um, it just felt, it felt like a call. Um, and so I, I went with it and um, that book was published in 2017 and then had a similar experience. Um, my family um, was uh, a foster, we, we were um, licensed as a foster care family and we had a foster daughter. Um, and again, just felt a real sense of vocation and call around that whole journey of fostering um, and then including about writing it. It was just like, I knew that I knew that I was meant to write a book about it. So that book is coming out next month. So oh, in terms great. of vocations, yeah, thanks. And so in terms of vocations, you know, I really, again, I, I want to really honor both parts of my life, right? And so part of what I write about in my first book is that um, 
you know, I really see my work in public health, not just as a job, you know, I really do also feel a sense of call around that work. And so how can I, you know, and I hesitate to sort of call one my job, but one my hobby, you know, you use the word avocation a minute ago. And I'm, I just, even that to me, like if you, if you look up the word avocation, often what comes up on Google is hobby. And I think that that sort of dim- diminishes the, the sense of, um, gravitas and kind of power and the Holy Spirit that I feel in both of these parts of my life. Um, so I really like the word bivocational because um, I think that that just really gives both pieces of my life that sort of way that I feel the the sort of again the thankful you know thanks be to God the power of the Holy Spirit in those two parts of my life. So. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's been a fun word to find because as I was mentioning to you, I think clergy often are familiar with the word bivocational, especially because a lot of pastors work part-time for various reasons. And so people, I think, again, clergy are used to thinking about their different vocations. But I think for lay people, at least for me, I hadn't been exposed to that word. And it's a really helpful um, construct or framework. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm wondering, too, about like your draw to write at it's interesting what you were drawn to write about is the story of, I mean, your, your first book is really kind of a story of, of becoming Christian. Um, and so I for sure want to talk about that, but I also have a question that I didn't send to you in advance. Just uh, uh-huh. about, <laughs> no problem. Like it seems a little odd to me, maybe that you weren't drawn to write about some of your experience in international health. Like that maybe is like, that seems to be, like, I think people would be really interested in that. Maybe I'm just saying, hey, you should write a book about that. <laughs> we could read it. But, um, but well, I mean, it, I do a lot of, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. That's, it's fine. Well, I mean, I do a lot of writing in my, in my day job. You know, I do write a lot sure. of blogs and a lot of peer reviewed journal articles. And um, so I think, you know, I'm used to writing more short kind of punchy pieces, both for sort of, um, you know, a blog is obviously more for kind of, um, general consumption and then peer review journal articles, more, you know, evidence-based, et cetera. Um, so I write a lot, I think, yeah, I just, and again, I think that's, you know, I think that that's part of discern, discernment and discerning vocation. I'd be curious, Matt, how you feel about this, but I mean, there's a million topics that any of us could write about, right? So why, you know, why do we write about this, but not that? Why do we do X and not Y? And I think part of that is that um, sort of, that's the sort of, that's been the sort of shock and, and kind of awe of feeling this clarity around being called to write this story, which I didn't need, you know, I didn't need to write. I didn't need it for my sort of sense of ego or in fact, it was scary. It was this probably the scariest thing I've ever done is to publish that book because, um, you know, part of my, my two sort of platforms and lives is one is you know, one is faith-based and one is much more grounded in a secular world. And so I was worried that um, my colleagues, my my public health colleagues, you know, obviously some of them are religious, but many of them are not. And I really worried that it would, the book would undermine my sense of credibility mm-hmm. and legitimacy. And so it was truly, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, puff myself up or anything, but it was, it was a leap of faith. It was really scary. And I just, it felt like it was part of being faithful, um, to the gifts that God had given me was to respond to that call. Um, so anyway, I think, what was your experience with, uh, when the book came out and like, what, what, what was the reception like amongst colleagues or, or friends or, 
Yeah, I'm smiling because I think, I mean, I think one of the lessons learned is that, you know, we all think that we're more the center of the universe than we really are. So I think, uh, you know, I was worried and people are incredibly kind and generous. So people have been incredibly kind and supportive, um, even people who are not, um, who are not religious and even who have some sort of spoken or unspoken antipathy towards religion, I think, you know, obviously the people who care about me and support me have been caring and supportive, which, um, you know, so I think in some ways, I think a lot of my fears were misplaced. Um, you know, that said, I do think we live in a time where unfortunately, again, the topic that I work on is contraception and the face of, oftentimes the face of opposition to funding and, um, and momentum for increasing access to contraception is perceived as coming from the religious community. So I do think that there's sort of important ways that I need to, you know, be careful and treat these topics, obviously, with carefulness as I as I speak in a public forum. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, but I know what you're talking about, about this sort of drive to write and even around which topics, like how many possibilities there are. Um, the first book that I wrote was um, like writing long form um, after writing, you know, years and years of sermons, um, was a mm. fiction. Uh, so I wrote a, mm. a novel and have this, have a series of fantasy books for young readers and was really primarily writing for my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried writing books before, but they just hadn't worked. And that's the one that stuck and enabled me really to be able to move and be able to write, uh, my nonfiction as well after that. Um, but I don't know, like I, now I can see some of the things that God might've been up to and prompting me to write that. But at the time I didn't, it was just sort of, oh, this might be an interesting story and I'll, and I'll try this. And it seemed to stick. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing when you think about discernment, I think a lot of times people don't, um, they tend to think, oh, I'm going to sit and I'm going to pray and I'm going to have, get clarity from God and then I'll know what to do. And I find that mm-hmm. discernment a lot of the time is actually um, found in the doing or in mm. this case, like in the writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that kind of sense of joy or passion or energy, like, um, you know, is that the Holy Spirit? Is that, you know, just p- personal preferences and, sure. and pleasure? You know, it's, yeah, I yeah. think it's, it's, a, it's certainly um, delicate yeah, yeah. <laughs> process of, of sort of wisdom around what, what all that is. Yeah. Now I, I said earlier that, that your first book, um, which is called following the red bird, um, is well, at least the, the first part of it anyway, is really about the story of how you became a Christian. Um, so I would love it if you could share, you might not be able to share the whole story today. Um, people can go and read the book. Um, but can you share some of the story of, of how you, uh, you know, how you were raised and then how that shifted in your adult life. Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, so I grew up outside of Boston and I was raised in a pretty agnostic home. I was raised as a Unitarian Universalist. So I don't know if, if you and your listeners mm-hmm. uh, know much about the denomination, but really in it's a, it's the, the current sort of manifestation is, is that the UU church really welcomes, um, people of all um, paths and really supports individual search for truth and meaning, which in some ways was an incredibly powerful way to be raised, right? To be really um, from, from childhood be told that my search for truth and meaning was, was valued and, um, 
and encouraged. So that was an incredibly empowering message. Um, in reality, a lot of the the um, people who are at the UU Church, I think, have gone have has sort of ended up there for various reasons. But one of the reasons is that people have had painful experiences in the Christian church, like people like my mother who grew up as Christian and then had um, sort of unfortunately a bad taste in their mouth for various reasons and sort of still felt spiritual, quote unquote, but and wanted community, um, but maybe either um, identified more as atheist or agnostic or again, sort of wanted a more inclusive and progressive um, culture within their religious community. So anyway, the upshot was that um, I wasn't raised um, with a clear ideology, certainly with any clear sense of, um, even a sense of, you know, God or, and definitely not of Christian tradition. Um, Again, the real, I think the reality, the experience I had, and not everybody may feel this is fair, is that in some ways Christianity was almost treated as it was a dirty word, I think. Um, And so I just, I kind of followed that tone and dismissed Christianity out of hand. Um, I just didn't really consider it seriously for my life or my, for my, as I was searching. Um, And I, but again, I always was spiritual and um, I talk some about the book and I won't go into all the details, but then um, in my early twenties, I met my, my husband, David, who I've been married to for, um, about 16 years. And he, um, is a serious Buddhist practitioner and he was, um, went to Nepal as a young man. And, um, you know, I think we talk a lot about Buddhism these days in our pop culture. Um, and he's not the Buddhist, I think you envision on, you know, I don't know, pop, you know, the popular imagination of like sort of mindfulness meditation. He's really a scholar and really, and he teaches and he's very, very, um, he's very robust in his, um, approach to Buddhism. And he really, and sort of his, um, f- his faith and his, um, the intensity of his practice and the depth of his learning really inspired me. And it pushed me to sort of uh, figure out, you know, more what I believed and what I wanted to do. So anyway, one le- thing led to another. And I had this, um, I was actually meditating at his, um, at his center when I had this, um, really what I consider to be a conversion moment. I felt um, Jesus really, his presence inside me. And um, it's a more complicated story, which I get into in the book. Um, but it really opened, I, I felt God was calling me um, to a new life and to a new path. And um, so I listened to that. And I really, I, I stepped forward without any sense of kind of where that was going to end up leading. I really didn't know. Um, and then again, so the, the title of my book is Following the Red Bird. And I'll just pause and say that the, that metaphor comes from um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When um, I don't know if you know that scene where yeah. um, Lucy is in the woods in Narnia and she's there's a red ro- a, bur- a robin with a red breast. And she says, my, I do believe he means us to follow him as the bird mm-hmm. sort of hops from one branch to the next. And that's really, I think, a metaphor for my spiritual life was I just... I often don't know where, you know, I just follow the bird from branch to branch. Um, And so that became sort of a metaphor for the ways the Holy Spirit was calling me. And um, a year later to the day, which is is kind of amazing, um, uh, to when I had that conversion or that um, that kind of dramatic moment um, at my husband's Buddha center, I was was baptized a year later and um, it was the Easter vigil service and I was baptized as an Episcopalian um, and confirmed a week later by 
Michael Curry, who's now the bishop. Um, mm-hmm. He was the he was the bishop of North Carolina at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and so I've been hap sort of hap. <laughs> I don't know if you can say happily ever after about your faith life because it's been, you know, it's been like rich and challenging and confusing and wonderful and, um, you know, circuitous in some ways since then, but it's been really incredibly deep and I feel the sense of homecoming. Like I just, um, it's really been amazing. So I feel so grateful um, and surprised. I still feel surprised. <laughs> to yeah, be honest that's, with you. that's really amazing. So as you're in a Buddhist meditation center, um, you said you had an experience of Jesus. How did you, how did you know that it was Jesus? Yeah. So there's actually kind of two, two phases to the sort of experience. And um, I kind of conflated them into one, but I described them both in the book. But so the first step was really um, asking God kind of what, direction God wanted me to go in. And at that time I was actually planning to sort of stick with being a Unitarian Universalist. And what I describe in the book is, uh, you know, what I find, I'm not, this may not be fair, but I've done a lot of reading about Christian theology and Christian practice. And I find like people talk about listening to the still small voice, um, but there's, it's not often broken down. Like how, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? And so my experience was I was, partly I did it in writing um, and partly it was kind of an internal dialogue, but I, I was talking to God about planning to stay put in my current track. And I felt, I felt this kind of interior voice saying, no, I have a different plan for you in mind. And I, and I started writing down that dialogue. And what I say in Falling the Red Bird is, you know, a skeptic could certainly say I was just dialoguing with myself and that's a perfectly reasonable, you know, <laughs> response. But it, the, the sort of the quality that the tenor, the, the, just something about it felt in, totally different. Um, it just felt so, you know, it felt, it felt like a divine voice that I was talking with. And, and that was sort of, it was, it, it was, it was crazy and not, <laughs> nothing I'd had experienced before. So that's sort of, um, and, and, and I, what I talk about the book is really taking that voice seriously and then cultivating it over the time, over time. So that now I feel like I have much more of that kind of conversation quote unquote with God for lack of a better word as much more part of my daily prayer life and my daily life. So, so I've really leaned into that. And then in terms of your question about Jesus, um, so again, this maybe seems a little bit um, esoteric, but just bear with me. Um, One of the prayer practices I had learned from my husband in his Buddhist tradition is called taking and giving. And you imagine that you're breathing out others suffering, um, excuse me, breathing in other people's suffering and that's the taking. And you imagine that it's black smoke. So you imagine the suffering of your loved ones, of the world, and you're breathing it into yourself. And then in Buddhist belief, the the smoke goes into the, to your heart and it destroys your self-cherishing because our self-cherishing is what really gets us into trouble um, according to Buddhist teachings. And then you're able to breathe out pure love and healing and that's the giving. Um, so I really love this image and I had done that taking and giving practice for about, for a couple of years um, when I had this moment at his center and it was, um, and, it, and, I, and what happened was, and again, I described this in the book as I was doing that taking and giving meditation or prayer, which I'd done for many years. And what was different is suddenly Jesus was there in my consciousness and my presence, and he was doing it for me. And sort of the aha moment was that I couldn't hope to do this by myself, this sort of taking on suffering and giving peace to 
to the world was something I, you know, that I'm, and it makes total sense now that I'm totally inadequate to do, you know, myself. But so it was what I say in the book, it was like, you know, those old, um, overhead projectors, like with the plastic film, it felt like that. It felt like Jesus was like laid on top of me and suddenly the world Hmm. looked different and, and, and I was doing this kind of taking and giving, but I was doing it through Christ and Christ was in me. And, um, and so it was just a really, it was just a wild and, um, powerful moment. And that was really up until then I had read about Jesus. I had read the, really the book that changed my life, which I know it's changed so many was C.S. Lewis's, um, writing about, um, you know, about Jesus. And so I had sort of like this, mere, mere Christianity, mere Christianity. Yeah. yeah, sorry, mere Christianity. And I had, so I had this kind of conceptual framework of why Jesus, but I hadn't had that sort of more lived experience. And so that, in that moment, I suddenly kind of got it, quote unquote, you know, I got yeah, yeah. Jesus in this kind of, kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it wasn't just intellectual, it was like spiritual, you know, it was, it was, it was lived, it was, it was a relationship. And so then ever since, and then ever since then, it's like, Jesus won't, he doesn't, he has not left. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> He's stuck around. I li- <laughs> um, so, you know, he's just with me now, which is yeah. thanks be to God. Like, thanks yeah. be, you know, I'm just so, I feel fortunate. I feel so fortunate. Um, yeah, there's so a there's a moment in the book. I, it's pretty early on in the book where you're describing this, um, and uh, where where you felt that God was telling you really to seek a different community of faith. This is kind of what you were just talking about, and the words that you used to describe this were hearing from God. What you need is teaching on how to be with me. Um, mm-hmm. And then you're saying just now, like when you look around in in the church that that kind of teaching isn't necessarily broken down. Like it doesn't actually isn't. So, well, how do we actually do that? How do we actually uh, be with God uh, or with Jesus or with the Trinity? Um, And yet somehow, I guess you were moved to then, um, like, did you find that in the Episcopal church? Is that, is that where, where that, that, did that environment sort of, sort of provide help for that? Um, for that idea of, of being with God. Is that, is that fair to say that? Yeah. So it's a great question. So I, I've really been blessed because I um, work with an amazing spiritual director. So I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with spiritual directors, but I, you know, I wasn't familiar with it when I, when I started this journey. I mean, I knew about therapy, I knew about coaching, but I didn't know about what a spiritual director was. And so early in this is in the journey, my rector recommended a a spiritual director to me whose name is Liz. And, um, and I just still remember when, and again, it's like these little moments of discernment. Like when he said her name, it was like a bell was ringing in my heart. Um, and so I've had, um, I've had a relationship with Liz for now, you know, about the last decade. And, um, I th- and and so that that's been great, you know, the one-on-one time. But really, what Liz did for me, which was just life-changing, is she just started lending me books. Um, and again, I think I don't know what I, I don't know what how things would have worked out differently if she just she just literally started like lending me grocery bags full of books, and um, it was such a gift. You know, people can I don't know people can sometimes be stingy about lending books, and she just was so generous, and she just gave me all of these books, which are sort of the canon of, um, you know. Christianity, including contemplative practices and more theological, um, sort of heavy hitting stuff. And I think I was just hungry for 
to understand what I'd gotten myself into maybe. Um, and, and, and like you're saying, to understand how do you do this? Not just what do you, how do you, what do you believe or what do you put your trust in, but how do you do it? Because again, that's what Buddhism, I'm married to this guy who's like really focused on how you do, you know, how you, what you think and how you act and how you live. And so I wanted to sort of do that, but with my, with my new, you know, with the, with Christianity, which, um, I had committed my heart and my life to in baptism. Um, and so that's really, you know, a lot of the writers that I quote in Falling the Red Bird and in my later work, you know, which was from that time of, of Liz lending me all these books and me kind of devouring them. So I think, you know, that's, I, I mean, yes, certainly the church that I belong to and the Episcopal Church have been incredible um, sense of homecoming. And I've, again, can say more about that, but also just sort of the, the, the interface between writing and reading has really been where I feel like I've, I've, um, I don't know, grown up spiritually. And I think that's maybe what I try to do in my writing is take that more of that, like, okay, I'm an, I'm a new convert. I'm trying to figure it out and I'm absorbing all this kind of great reading. And now how do you apply that to everyday life? And that's really actually what the second half of Falling the Red Bird about is. And about my second half of my book is like, okay, so like, what does it mean? What does this mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does this mean to, you know, the last shall be first and the first shall be last? Like, how do you do that when we live in a competitive society where, climbing the ladder is what's valued. Like, how do you, what is, you know, break. And so that's what I really have tried to explore um, is the stops and starts, the challenges of this kind of application. And the same with my writing about foster, being a foster family. And, you know, again, there's a million things that we do in the world as, as people and as Christians that are faithful and good and loving. Like, how do we use all that as grist for the mill in our journey to getting closer to God and, um, growing in faith. So I think that's really what I'm interested in. Yeah. And I think your perspective is really helpful because especially for, for people like me, like I grew up in the church and, and I think that's an amazing thing. Um, what's, what's hard, what can be hard for people who've grown up within the Christian tradition, um, is it can be hard to see the water that you're swimming in. Like you're, you're just, Mm, um, mm -hmm. you're just kind of in that environment and you don't see what is, so incredible about um like what the what the true gifts are um so you know i was raised with forgiveness as like a core value of something that we practice and do but i but i never had to learn <laughs> like i never had to sit down and get a lesson on you know this is a core value and this is some, this is something we live by because i just saw it around me all the time mm. um and it was modeled to me by my parents primarily. And, uh, and then, you know, I obviously learned about it, uh, but it just, it, it didn't seem that revolutionary to me ever until mm-hmm. I started, I, I, had, you know, I'd been a pastor for a number of years before it kind of dawned on me that, oh my goodness, you know, people don't forgive very much. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that's strange. <laughs> like, right, you know, right. so, um, so I think you have like this, it's a great perspective for you to have as someone who, um, is coming, you know, you have an experience of the world and, and are able to then realize, you know, tell a story about this is the incredible gift that the Christian faith is offering, um, to the world. And, uh, if we actually are going to live this out and then, you know, I, so I think Christians actually really need to (laughs) read 
your your kinds of books and your 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 writing um uh, because it'll really help us have that perspective of oh yeah right um this is why jesus is so important this is why this relationship with him is so important um because we don't always necessarily step back and reflect on that or realize like, how am I? Li- oh, maybe I am living out my faith, but I don't actually <laughs> even frame it in those terms. Yeah. I haven't actually even thought about that. Well, I think the forgiveness example is really, is really a good one. And maybe we can just talk about that one a little sure. bit more. Cause I do think like we throw that word around, but what does it mean? And so I think, you know, um, what you just said about like, it forgiveness being a Christian value and your parents modeling Christianity. I mean, forgiveness is so powerful. And then I think as a new Christian, I'm like, okay, sounds good. But what, like, first of all, what does define it for me? (laughs) And, and second of all, like, how do you do it? How do you, if you don't feel forgiving, how do you forgive? And, you know, that again is something that I've really lived into in a pretty surprising way because I, um, have ha- had as sort of concurrent to the journey I've been describing to you, had a really difficult struggle in my marriage with David where I wanted another biological child. We had a we had a daughter together and he didn't. And so part of that has been forgiving him, like that he wants something so different from me. And it's not because he's a bad guy or he's done anything wrong because he hasn't, he, you know, his, but I have felt incredible anger and disappointment. And so like, perhaps there's also a message there for clergy, which is that your, you know, your flock needs to know practically how to do these things, which again, not to compare and contrast, this isn't a comparative religion, but I think Buddhism, since I'm so exposed to that is really, you know, that's all that they focus on is like, so if you have a mind of anger, how do you transform your mind to a mind of of love and forgiveness? Like what are, what is the method of that? And um, so I think I come to it with that kind of like what is the Christian method? You know, I want to do it. Sign me up. I've signed, I've signed, I've signed the dotted line. Now I'm ready to do it. Um, and, and the sort of, again, you know, understanding then that a lot of that happens with God's grace and that we don't control it. And, but even that, you know, so explain that to me, how does that work? Um, so again, I think there's just a lot there that to unpack that's, that's important for both, laity, but also for clergy in terms of how the instruction or something that maybe others are hungry for as well. Sure. I think as well, like one of the, I think one of the gifts of Christianity as well is to kind of, is to emphasize that it's, that everything is primarily God's activity. And, and most of what we're doing is in response. Um, So even like, I think this would be like the, and I think you're alluding to this would say uh, the Buddhist practice where it's, it's very focused on like there's a practicality to it, but the the danger of that practicality of what do I do is that we can then miss that actually God is the primary actor. Like God is actually up to something here mm-hmm. um, in like not necessarily independent of us, but it's, it's not that we are doing these things so that God will suddenly start doing whatever God's going to do. It's that God right. is already acting and God is already moving. And, and the Christian tradition is pretty, secure on that i i think um but but i think a lot of our behavior as christians even in our prayer lives can can maybe negate that like we sometimes are not necessarily if we get too overly focused on spiritual practices we can then start to lean towards this is really kind of like a self-help kind of thing (laughs) but rather than it's oh no this is actually about a tool that's helpful to connect to god who is at work in the world 
Right. Um, no, that's the, that's the sort of, there's, I, there's the rub, right. Um, yeah. That sort of walking that line. And um, I'll just say briefly, because I think it directly speaks to what you're talking about, which is, um, so I'm, I'm currently working on my third book about, um, about Sabbath and um, it's, the title is Reclaiming Rest. And I'm um, going to be publishing that with Broadleaf Books next year. And, and the, 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 the manuscripts actually do next week. So fingers crossed. Um, but so I'm right in the heart, like in the final edits of the draft. And, you know, that to me, it, my, a lot of my point in that book is, is that Sabbath is the sort of crucible, if you will, or the vehicle for my ongoing conversion, because as someone who is raised, talk about, I love the image you had of like the, the water that you swim in, you know, the phrase I was writing about the other day is like the air I breathe, like the air I bre- breathe, breathed, the air I breathed was the secular humanism, you know, that, yeah. that like was through our own ingenuity and our own ethical framework, like humans will, you know, we got to work hard and like save ourselves. If we have global poverty, we got to like you know, knock it out. If we have a global pandemic, we got to find a vaccine. And of course, like that's, that's true. Um, but like, so then where, where is God, like, where is God in that framework? And so for me, Sabbath is this like constant call, you know, if I spend my week, like working hard, you know, working hard to quote unquote, make the world a better place through my own public health efforts, like how, you know, Sabbath is the place I return to God and return to the principle that you just said, which is right. we are participating in God's healing and cre- God's creation and God's healing of the world rather than we are driving, you know, we're driving the car, we're running the show. Sure. And that's just a really, I just, ha- you know, I feel like a bad convert or a bad Christian, but it's just such a hard, it's like <laughs> a f- constant return. You know, it's a constant, like okay, wow, like what a challenging, life-changing, life-altering, you know, different, for me, different worldview than what I was raised in. And for you who grew up in the church, like many of my Christian friends, it's sec- it's sort of, it seems so obvious. But for me, that's why I'm actually trying, I'm actually trying on the word now moving from bivocational to being bilingual, because I feel like I have this bilingual nature where it's like, I know the world of and the language and the sort of life of secular humanism. And I know right. the kind of language or a faith or I'm learning it. And so how do I and then what does it mean to be in the world when you are bilingual, you know? <laughs> um, right. So that's actually, kind of that's, what I'm thinking about actually is a really great, That actually is a really great term because I, um, I'm thinking about like when I'm in conversations with people where English is their second language. Mm-hmm. And then I say something that's, that makes perfect sense to me, but it's an mm-hmm. idiom. It's, it's yep. not like, and, and everyone jargon. in Canada would, <laughs> would totally understand it. Um, right. And they stop and have to ask a question about what 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 do you really mean by that? And I think that's that's maybe what we're talking about here is that um, that often we don't we don't quite see or we don't quite understand even our own way of being in the world, um, and we need someone who is speaking a different language sometimes to point mm-hmm. out to us. You know, actually, you have something really helpful here, and you can you can share right. that. Um, the other thing that with Sabbath, I'm really excited about, I think we need more, we need more books on Sabbath in the world. And we, and, <laughs> Good. I'm glad uh, you feel that way. Cause there are a lot, <laughs> there's a lot. but, um, but we do need more of them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's such an important concept, I think for, for lots of reasons, um, uh, something that you were just saying about it, it's a sense of like God's sovereignty. I also think it's mm-hmm. also about what is our ultimate hope? This is one of the things that I've been thinking about yep. with, uh, specifically with the, with the pandemic. 
um, happening is that a lot of the language, especially early on, but even now, um, we're recording this in July, 2020, um, the language is very much like, how do we get, people are recognizing we're not going to go back to the way it was. Um, but there's still, it seems as though the hope is, can we, can we go back to how it was? Like that's sort of, that's sort of the underlying hope is let's get back to, you know, as quote unquote normal as we can. And I think, well, like that isn't actually the hope of healing. Like that isn't, like that isn't actually our ultimate hope. Like, but I feel like human ingenuity, we, yeah, that's, that's probably a good thing to work on. Like that's, like that's probably, it's probably a good thing to find a vaccine and a, and a good thing to work to try to, you know, make sure that it, economies can be rebuilt and work to, you know, we have things to work on for sure. But ultimate hope, please, is not let's go back to how it was in 2019. Like, right. I really hope there's something bigger than that. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of feel like Sabbath is a reminder, actually, that there's something greater um, than what we're doing all week. Like, yeah, I mean, and so I, again, I can bring my, my sort of, I was on a public health, um, webinar. We've, you know, we've all moved to zoom. And so you may have heard this, but I hadn't, which is in the humanitarian, like if you're for those in public health who work on humanitarian crisis situations, like refugee, um, working with refugees, et cetera, there's this phrase of building back better um, so that we need to take the opportunity to build back better. And I I hadn't heard that either and I loved it. So it's like, how do we as a world take this opportunity to build back better in every, you know, domain, economically, politically. And so, but again, I think like language matters, right? So the sort of the concept there is again, that we as humans are going to build back better. And, um, you know, you said a minute ago, um, I think, you know, something around like God is the one who's the impetus or the, you know, that comes from God. And then we are responding to that. And so, um, like my, one of my priests gave me a word recently that I've been really dwelling with, which is like that we're participating in God's creation and in God's healing and restoration of the world. And the word participating to me, again, as a, maybe this is as an old, as a, as a, um, from birth Christian versus a convert that's like secondhand to you. But I think, again, the language that I was grown up with is that we have to save the world, that we have to fix the world. You know, my mother is a social justice activist, which I'm incredibly grateful for, but it's, again, through a humanist lens. So her her message to me is that I have to help save the world. And that is a huge, <laughs> that's a huge, um, uh, that's a lot of pressure and, yeah. you know, has not, has not proven to be very like, um, you know, it's hard, right. To, to save the world, quote unquote, and doesn't seem to be going very fast or very well. Um, and so like, if I put my hope not in my own, like in humanity's ability to, to save the world, but rather in God's, healing and redemption it's just it's really different and um and to me that's i feel like sabbath can so quickly become like a self-care strategy you know like yeah. everybody believes in self-care everybody believes that we should like you know as lauren winner says take the extra long bubble bath um mm. but i think what sabbath offers is something just so profoundly different that it is a reminder to put our hope in god's healing rather than in our own efforts and um not that we but we participate right so that's the that's the verb i've been i've been 
leaning into this week, which is like we're participating in God's in God's creation and in God's healing. So I don't know if you you can again. I always need to check my theology here. You can tell me if I've got it right. Um, yeah, uh, I think I think participating makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm a I'm a sports person, so I often mm-hmm. think of like things uh, sports imagery, <laughs> and I think of like um, you know if you're playing on a team and you're participating in that team and there is a goal, like you're trying to win, but, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes we feel like, you know, uh, you know, you, you remove one player out of that team and the team can probably still win. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that's the way it is with, with God, um, with participating in what God, in God's redeeming work, God can do it without us, like you know. Um, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't participate. Like, and, and for me, like when I think of like kids playing sports, especially, it's not actually about the the outcome, right? It's not like it is and it isn't. It is about the outcome for the team as a whole. But then the participation is actually about you know that joy of participating. Um, so I, I I don't know. I think there's maybe something there about that as well. That's actually not good theology either. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I hear you. Someone just, you know, I've been. I mean, I think so much of our hearts and minds are on the Black Black Lives Matter movement yeah. right now and the legacy, the terrible both legacy and present day reality of violent white supremacy in the United States and around the world. And you know, and I I was talking about this with a. Um, the Christian writer and leader recently. And she, you know, she sort of made a similar point, which is like, God is in the process, not in the results. And and not that God isn't in the results, but that so much of sort of our life of faith is in the process. And I hear you. And I think, but we're also so hungry for results, like where we want justice, we want, and like, you know, we just participated in a Black Lives Matter movement, a mixed me demonstration or protest down in Chapel Hill. And like, we're all chanting, like, when do we want justice? We want it now. And so, you know, I like, in some ways, I like the idea that there is a goal, you know, that like, I don't, again, in public health, we're like, we're, we want, we, we're not just doing this for the fun of it. Like we're working right. to improve public health indicators. And so I have that so strongly in me. And again, I just, um, so it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's challenging, <laughs> like for faith, yeah. but it's, but it's so, but yeah, it's so rich. So again, as um, I think I, I do bring this sort of fairly, I mean, I, I don't talk to a lot of converts. Um, and so it is, you know, it certainly has been just like a rich journey to be learning this new language. Like you, like we've been talking about this kind of totally new worldview and it's just totally stretched me and changed me hugely. And so it's, I'm just really grateful. Right. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, I wanted to ask you too. We've been talking about Sabbath, um, but uh, are there other spiritual practices that you have discovered in the last few years that that have been particularly life giving for you, or that you engage in regularly? Yeah. So I have a daily prayer practice, and. Um, you know, the, there's some, again, some more to the story than I've been able to share on the podcast of my conversion journey. But for about maybe a year before I had sort of that kind of um, maybe lightning bolt moment, you'd call it, where I really felt Christ within me, um, I'd had a daily prayer practice. So I had signed up for a class for people who were spiritual seekers and wanted to kind of go deeper. And we were all invited to um, 
to, uh, you know, uh, um, take on a spiritual practice as part of that, a daily spiritual practice. So I chose prayer. Some people, you know, it was, it was a pretty um, ecumenical and non um, heavy duty class. So some people chose walking in the woods and poetry. And, and so in some ways I was like the most, like I'm doing prayer. Um, and so I, during that time I was exposed it's like to the radical very- and revolutionary. <laughs> Yeah, I was a real, I was a real radical. Um, so I was exposed to the traditional for- format, which I'm sure you and others know, which is, you know, that the seven step um, opening, uh, Thanksgiving, confession, um, uh, intercession, listening, um, and then closing. And so I don't know if I got all seven of the steps, but I, you know, so but, since I think that, that was time, five, but I don't oh, know five? that I've ever, I don't, honestly, I don't know if I've ever heard of Really? seven step. Well, it was like this classic, prayer. you know, maybe it's not, it's like, you know, if you read different sources, you'll hear slightly, but it's like okay. almost all of them have, and in different orders, it's like Thanksgiving is one of the steps. Confession is one of the steps. Intercession is one of the sure. steps. Listening. And then, um, what's the word when you're like, intercession is like asking for others, right? And what's the word when yeah. you're asking for yourself? Supplication, um, maybe? Yeah, maybe supplication. And then like opening and closing. Okay. Um, so, and when I've read, I, you know, I've read that you can kind of, that sometimes people do different orders and different names, but um, so I really, and I blogged a little bit about this. I really love, I really love that framework because it gives me these kind of milestones and, or, you know, um, touch points in my prayer where I can have a little bit of loose structure, but yet there's plenty of room for kind of sort of authentic dialogue with the Holy spirit. And, um, so, you know, I have, and so I just do something and I can, um, if I, if time is short, you know, I can do it in 10 minutes. If I haven't, you know, mm-hmm. I can do it longer for an hour or whatever, but at each of those steps, I have sort of a mini practice within each of those steps, so to speak. Um, and so the, for example, in the listening, you know, listening, which is, I think the second to last step from in my order, um, I do Lectio Divina with scripture usually. Um, so I'll just, or w- with other, some other kind of reading. Um, so again, having the prayer, practice has, is really the, you know, the sort of foundation of my, con- again, I talked about Sabbath being the the vehicle for my conversion, but it's really, it, it more really is prayer, um, sure. not surprisingly. And so where, where I, were you given that, where were you given that structure? Was it just through that, through that class or? That yeah, through that class, someone, the, yeah. the teacher just gave us a, an article about how to do okay. I like this prayer structure and I was like, bingo, that's it. And I've, you know, I've obviously been exposed to other prayer um, forms since then, contemplative prayer, the, you know, the book of common prayer in the Episcopal church has the daily office. Um, But this has really worked for me. And so I've just stuck with it. And, um, and again, it's, I, I, I'm writing about, about the, about this now for my Sabbath book. I, um, before COVID I would, um, and I think part of the challenge for like, doing these things like when and how are we going to do them? And so I would drop off my daughter at school and I would um, sit in my car and, and do this prayer practice before I went into work. And it sort of like was unglamorous to do it in my car, but that's where I would do my prayer practice. And it just created this nice kind of um, cadence, um, this daily structure. Um, So, and I I told, I I interviewed someone who um, around centering prayer that they, they, they do centering prayer twice a day. Um, for 20 minutes uh, every day. And, um, and he would, uh, on his lunch break at work, 
uh, 20 minutes of his lunch break, he would run out to his car because it was the only quiet place he could find. And he would just sit in his car for 20 minutes on lunch, <laughs> do centering <laughs> prayer, and then run back into the office. Awesome. So, yeah. yeah, no, it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> well, and I think, again, as like a newer, as a, as a, as a newer person in this, in this life of faith, I think for me, that's also been an aha moment, which I'm sure is not a surprise to many of your listeners, but it's like that showing up in your relationship with God takes showing up. Like that I was just writing about this and somebody was like, you know, put a star and a smiley face next to about it. One of my readers in the margins, I'll say it, which is like, I think I sort of thought that spirituality was like getting the flu or, you know, like it sort of happened to you, like whether you wanted it or not. So like you would just like get to know, I don't know, like God or spirituality would just like kind of happen as opposed to it's more, I think the metaphor going back to your sports analogy is more like exercise. It's like, if you read a book about spirituality, it's not the same thing as praying, right? If you read a book about exercise, it's not the same thing as exercising. If you, if you read about prayer, you got to pray. So that's like, so I, you know, and I can feel like, you know, and it's really about a relationship. Like it's about a relationship with God. And so that when I, it's not when I neglect my prayer life or it goes away in my life, I just, I feel less connected to that, you know, to our relationship, which, you know, has all kinds of consequences for me. So. Which I think um, as well might connect back to our conversation about hope as well. Like if we mm -hmm. are placing our hope in God, like if I, I often think about say my marriage and I think, you know, what is my hope for my marriage? I don't have like a series of like particularly practical objectives that are going to come like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. (laughs) Right. Like that's, I, I want to have a, I want to have a long and, good relationship with my wife um Mm -hmm. i even hesitate to say oh i want us to fall more deeply in love like because (laughs) i kind of feel like well i'm deeply in love now like i just Mm want to stay married and um and continue and live life together and have a good life together and so like when we say that god is like the source of our ultimate hope yeah there's obviously there's this big huge picture of like you know, healing and reconciliation for the world. And we're participating in that. Um, but at the same time, like we have this person that we're relating mm-hmm. to um, and our hope for that, like is, is relational. It's not mm-hmm. just, it's, and, and I think even the healing of the world is probably relational too. Um, yeah. That when we, and we miss that sometimes in the, in the, in the bigger, bigger pictures. I mean, even when we think about say the black lives matter movement, um and racial reconciliation that is relational like that actually Mm -hmm. what is what that is um and what does that look like ultimately um i i i think that's super hard for like we've got to work incredibly hard as human beings to try to 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 do everything we can um to eradicate racism and to create more just systems um but i just have like my tiny human brain has trouble comprehending. Like I, I feel like, wow, we really need God here yeah. um, to, to get us to where we need to be. Um, and I don't say that as like a cop out, but as a like, yeah, I'm glad we're like, we need to participate in, in, in what God is going to do here. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, it, it's the, the relational pieces of theology of the Trinity, right? Which is just so yeah. powerful and like sort of mind blowing. And we just had Trinitarian Sunday, what maybe about a month or so ago. And, yeah. you know, my priest gave a homily on online, of course, um, that, you know, was really saying like, 
God, we, you know, God is not out there, up there. It's really, God is the relationships, you know, God is the relationship in the, in the Trinity. So, um, you know, I think that that's early in my life. One of my early mentors, who was a, um, a a pastor in my church long before I got religion. And he said, you know, God is the arrows between us. And so I, I, you know, yeah, I think that there's something, um, kind of deeply mystical about that although that word you know can be tricky but um for sure but we might as well cover that off since we're, we're, we're covering everything else off <laughs> and, all, and we're getting the, all the we're getting all the good words so. trying to be in there. uh if do you have a little more time is that a, is that okay yeah please um because i you've kind of talked a little bit about uh your latest book which i know is out i mean by the time this podcast is out your book might also be out um august 2020 um and uh, it's about uh, being a foster parent. Um, and I haven't had a chance to look at the book yet, uh, but um, I'm wondering about, would you describe that as a spiritual journey in some way? Or you can even just tell us what the book's about if you want to, but I'm, I'm interested in how do you see God, be, kind of back to like God being the primary actor in things. How do you see God being involved um, in that journey or in that process? Yeah, thanks so much for the chance to talk about it. So it's the title is Their Faces Shown a Foster Parents Lessons on Loving and Letting Go. And it comes out in August, as you said. And and yeah, maybe I should be more explicit in the marketing. It's definitely a Christian um faith-based book. Um for me, because the whole journey was about um, again, as I was sort of talking about earlier, like first of all, discerning to be whether discerning whether or not to be a foster family and about maybe the first third of the book is before our foster daughter is even placed with us just like deciding to become licensed and then going through the class and then going through the whole process and that was i mean that was like discernment with a capital d because again there was real risks like um you know we have we have a bio- we had a, our biological daughter was younger then we knew there would be some potential physical or emotional risk for her, which is obviously was scary. Um, my husband is a self-employed psychologist and we have friends who were falsely accused of abuse by their foster child. So we knew there was some like professional risk. So there was, there was a lot of risk involved or, and that, and that risk felt heavy um, to me at least. And so, um, and then there was also the risk of like it being heartbroken. Like even if everything went perfectly and we fell in love with a child and then the child had to leave, and we experienced that loss, like that's huge risk. And so that's actually is what happened is that we had this really amazing experience as a foster family. And then the child, then our foster daughter left and, you know, we experienced heartbreak and um, there's, then there was kind of a second chapter of the heartbreak, which is even sort of more, (laughs) more challenging. And so, um, you know, there was God all over. I, I start, um, I start the book, the very first page, um, talking about how I got fingerprinted, um, at the local sheriff's office to get, um, to go through, um, to get licensed as a foster parent. And so, you know, again, it's this, um, sort of metaphor of like God's fingerprints is, you know, is all over the situation. And, um, and that's true, even in the loss, like, how do we, you know, really like, um, how do we love fully, and knowing that we're going to lose. Um, uh, how did Mary do that with Jesus? Um, you know, and, and my husband, again, in all his Buddhist wisdom is like, that's like the job of being human, you know, loving without 
without clinging, without holding on. And it's like easier said than done, right? Um, that's sort of back full circle to our discussion of like, okay, so like, how do you, how do you do that? And, you know, and then what was really fascinating to me about our experience as foster parents that was surprising is that there were all these kind of secondary people who came into our life that we weren't expecting because of being foster parents. And so part of that was the biological family of our foster daughter. Um, her grandmother and I became really, you know, buddies. We, she, we joke that like, she's a sister or my sister from another mister. And, um, you know, we're just totally different. Like we come from a totally different background. Um, and sort of on paper, we, you know, we have different values, not values in sort of the most core sense, but like she's, you know, we just have very different lives. And yet we, um, just loved each other. And so, you know, it was such a, it was such a journey of like loving our neighbors. Um, you know, I write at one point, like the definition of neighbor is being near and it's like, it's hard to be, love somebody unless you're near them. And so we were near all these people that we would not have been near if we hadn't done this. Um, and that was, and that was incredible. Um, and then ultimately, you know, sort of the ultimate spiritual test was loving, our foster daughter and letting her go. And, um, we're not able, because we're not for various reasons, um, able to have contact with her now. And it's just, you know, my daughter, my biological daughter just said this morning, like, I, I miss her so much. It's been, it's been several years since she left. She like became our, she became our daughter. She became Lila's sister and letting her go was really hard. So, yeah, but it was like all God was all up in there. Um, I think, and, um, so it was ultimately just a really, you know, I think powerful journey for our family, even though it was, it was hard. Yeah. What do you think, um, if, if someone, I, I, I think obviously some people who maybe are foster parents or themselves or are thinking about that might be really interested in your book, especially something that's coming from a, a Christian perspective and worldview. Um, but what about, what about for folks who maybe are not, uh, not foster parents, not considering that, like what, what would they take from your book? Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. Um, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, if the, if the book would speak to, to, to that kind of, to more general audience. So, um, I'd be interested in your feedback, but I think the two things when again is like about discernment, right? Like as you explore, so wonderfully on your podcast, like discernment is something that we all, um, as Christians is part of our, part of our path or, you know, hopefully is. And so I think in some ways this was like an illustrative, um, it, this is an illustrative example, so to speak, but it really like, I think the process of how you discern and how you listen for God, God's call, um, would yeah. hopefully be more widely of interest. But then I think more broadly than that, it really ultimately is actually a story of, of marriage and, um, I, there's this kind of story in the middle of the book of the title of the title of the book, their faces shown. I, um, the, what happened was, is that my dear friend, um, Ren was, is Episcopal priest and she was giving a sermon about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and his face shone because he'd been talking to God. And she, Ren was giving the sermon and she read that the passage was in the lectionary and it was so crazy, Matt. Like I just had this sense of clarity that that was going to form the title of the title of the book. And I had no idea why. And um, so I explained halfway through the book, like how I kind of found the protagonist that matched um, the kind of matched the, 
the the title that I was writing towards. And it ended up being that the protagonist is my husband, David, and that sort of hit this kind of metaphor of like his, his love shown because he allowed, um, he allowed, you know, he sort of gave his blessing to, for us to be foster parents, even though he didn't feel the call. He was like, you, you're feeling the call, you know, God's got you on the, on the conference line. I don't feel this call. Um, but like, you know, God's calling you on this one. And so, but he did that. But then sort of the last part of the, of the book is that we, um, I don't want to give it away, but we had, we had a, we had a big conflict about what we had like a decision tree. We had a decision point to make, um, in our, in our, in our journey as foster parents. And David and I really did not agree on how to move forward and it created a crisis in our, in our relationship. And so loving our way through that. I mean, I think again, for all of us who have been in a marriage, but, or any kind of relationship with some, you know, family relationship where you love somebody, but you, you disagree and nobody's wrong, right? It's not like either of us were nobody, there was no bad guy. There was no, you know, we both were just sort of doing our best and discerning as we saw fit, but we disagreed and it was so painful. Um, And so again, I think marriage is hard and how do you love when and I think the reason I'm sort of saying this out loud so Paul, thanks for bearing with me but like when you you know when you want different things how how do you love through that I mean so many people in their marriages they just want different things not you know in small ways and big ways and so again loving our neighbors as ourselves the person who's nearest to us is usually our partner our spouse and so right. how do you love when you're mad at your partner (laughs) Um, or sad or hurt, like that's a universal struggle, at least I've found in the people I know. Um, And then, but again, like any spiritual journey, right? If like, if you can, if you can grow through that and and trust God in that and and find God and your partner, it's incredibly rewarding in the, in the, you know, with the big, with the big R, Um, not that it's easy, but it's incredibly, you know, and so that's, I think, answer your question, hopefully that, you know, story would be of interest um, and resonate with others beyond sort of the specifics of the book. Does that make sense? I think so, for sure. Yeah. So if people want to uh, connect with you or find out more about your writing and that kind of thing, is there, I'm sure there's a website. I I, I know there's a website because I've been there, but where where can people go? You'd be better (laughs) to tell them. Yeah, sure. So my website is pretty easy. It's katerodemacher.com. and I'm sure my name will be, you know, written out as a little weird to spell, but katerodemacher.com. And I have a blog on the edge of faith um, that I post on. I, we did a, hosted a series um, called Risky Love as related to the launch of, of Their Faces Shown. Yeah. And you can, um, you know, look, I'm on Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, so you can look for me there as well. And um, yeah, I'm happy to connect. And again, love talking about these issues. So happy for people to reach out to me by email or on my blog. Um, my, you know, you can send me a note on my, on my website um, and, and would love to further dialogue with, with folks about any or and all of these issues. Yeah. And just right. really appreciate, Matt, the chance to talk with you about it. Um, I wish we could do this all day. It's really, it's really been fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for being on today, I know we're Kate. wrapping up because, yeah. yeah, thanks again. I really, I really appreciate, appreciate it. it. Okay, thanks.